Welcome to Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Latour. The new issue of the Film Noir Foundation's quarterly Noir City e-magazine is now available, including articles on psychiatrists in film noir, both on screen and off, another story about how one of noir's most daring directors and one of Hollywood's chief production code enforcers both grew up in the same early 20th century utopian commune in San Diego, and a new regular feature dedicated to contemporary crime fiction called The Dark Page. The issue also features a new two-page spread layout for each article, with the magazine's standard embedded links to movies and trailers, clips, interviews, and music. To receive the current Noir City issue and an annual subscription to the quarterly e-magazine, you have to do two things. Go to filmnoirfoundation.org and, one, contribute $20 to the FNF's restoration efforts, and, two, sign up on the FNF mailing list. It's that simple. And now, let's talk to our guests for this month. Joining us this month are Vince and Rosemarie Keenan, the co-authors of a series of mystery novels set in classic Hollywood, featuring the legendary costume designer Edith Head as half of a crime-solving duo. Their novels are published under the pseudonym Renee Patrick. Vince and Rosemarie are also frequent contributors to the Film Noir Foundation's Noir City e-magazine, where Vince is the co-managing editor and the writer of a long-running column called Cocktails and Crime. So just to review, we're talking with a married couple about murder mysteries set in the 1930s, with a heavy dose of high fashion and snappy dialogue, and we've got some mixed drinks thrown in too. Sounds to me like the Film Noir Foundation's answer to Nick and Nora Charles. Vincent Rosemarie, welcome to Noir Talk. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us, guy. So let's start with some of the Noir City Film Festivals so far this year. You all made a guest appearance at this year's Noir City Hollywood for the opening night screenings. So how did everything go with that? It was fantastic. We were there for the screening, the 75th anniversary screening of This Gun for Hire. It was, it was a huge honor for us to be there because that is one festival that we had not been to before. And it was always on our, on, on our list to go to and to be invited down to, to, to help Eddie out for opening night was a real thrill. It was amazing. They had just finished the um, refurbishing of the Egyptian theater. So we got there. Like, the paint was practically still wet. It was <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of fun to be there for that. Oh, that's yes, great. no gum on the carpet. That was that was worn. We were, yes. yeah, that was brought to our attention very early on. I'm surprised the we didn't get like little paper booties to put yeah. on or something. The carpet was so new. Right, I did see in some of the pictures that uh, they had a vintage police car out in front of the um, of the theater with some police there, like in uh, period clothes. Is that is that right? Were you guys there for that night? Yes, we were. That's uh, they have a gorgeous courtyard right outside the Egyptian that extends out to the street, and so they've got a little room to play with. And so they brought that in. They had uh, they had some bulls there, guys in costume. Mm-hmm. And as is always the case with with Noir City, certainly in San Francisco and definitely Los Angeles, you have a lot of people in period costume. So it just you could, the second you step into that courtyard, you feel like you've you've moved backwards in time. Yeah, it's it's kind of wonderful. That festival in particular is always a lot of fun. And you all live in Seattle and, of course, have been attending and helping out with the Noir City Seattle Festival for many years, ever since it's been there, which I guess is about 10 years now. 
Go yeah, ahead. it's been 10 years. Uh, I want to say 2007 is when it kicked off. Yeah, there was so. there was a one year layoff, but uh, it's it's been 10 years at a, at a number of different venues and we have been at all of them. And so what about for this year, uh, when I had Eddie on for the first episode of this podcast, he mentioned that the screening in Seattle of The Killing in particular went over really well, that the audience uh, responded huge to that. So what about some of the other uh, shows at Seattle this year? For you all, what were some of your favorites or some thoughts you have about how the festival went? One of our favorite things about the Seattle Festival is that it's close enough to the San Francisco Fest that we tend to get a lot of the same programming. And Seattle has been responded really well to Eddie's choices. So, for instance, when the International Festival happened in, in 2014, I think, he brought that up here. And so we got to see all of those movies. And this year, the same thing happened when uh, the big knockdown was in San Francisco, we got all the heist movies. Mm -hmm. And it was, and the audience responded so well to them. And the, the, I think the audience here loves the classic, the films from the classic era, but they are happy to see the newer films as well. And so um, all the heist films kind of ran the gamut in years and we had like packed houses pretty much every night. It was great. I mean, my favorite of the films that we showed uh, at, at the festival this year was the original, The Taking of Pelham 123 which is, as Eddie knows, my favorite movie of all time. And for that reason, he actually uh, dragged me up on stage and had me do the introduction with him, which was a real treat. But that was a, the, one of the 35 millimeter prints that came up. And to see that film in a packed house on film was an unbelievable experience, especially because it was really similar to The Killing in that Eddie asked the audience beforehand how many people were encountering the film for the first time. And I want to say it was two thirds to 75% yeah, of the much. audience hadn't seen the movie before. And it was, it was very similar to the killing screening in that everyone who had seen it was kind of leaning into the plot twists and the jokes and setting them up for the audience. So the movie played even better than it would have otherwise. Yeah. Everyone had a great time at that. Cause Pelham is funny along with being very suspenseful and very exciting. Yeah. It's, there a lot of good gags in there. Yes. <laughs> and a very New York movie, which yes. we were, we were there, we were representing the New York contingent at that screening and we were proud to do so. <laughs> As the native New Yorkers. Yeah. For, for both of you, yeah. is that pretty close to like documentary realism of what it was like on the subways <laughs> at that time <laughs> in New York? It's, it's, it's a perfect time capsule of that, fun city era of New York. Yeah, it's amazing. And with all the character actors in that and uh, just the- but We also got the chance to um, show some of the other films from, from that series that I think played really well. Uh, I actually was, was able to fill in for Eddie on one afternoon and got to introduce The Lady Killers, which is a movie that I've always loved. And again, like Pelham, like Rosemary was saying about mm -hmm. Pelham, it's a funny movie. I'm always a fan of having, a, you know, like a comic noir as part of the lineup and to get a chance to, to, to introduce that movie, because it's another film where a lot of the people in the audience were not familiar with it. Uh, it, it played really well at a gorgeous print too. Yeah, it, was was, yeah, it looked phenomenal. That's one of, that's one of my favorites too. And uh, it was great to see it in San Francisco. So my question for you all on that movie is in San Francisco, I think the, the fan favorite or the audience favorite of the rogues gallery of criminals and lady killers was probably one round who's the the big hulking guy played by the actor danny green who has kind of the the soft heart for the little old lady so and he's a hilarious character and of course is wonderful so is that um 
is that who you think they really went over for uh, in Seattle as well? Or um, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone enjoyed his bits. I think um, people loved Alec Guinness too, though. I mean, yes. maybe that's just me because he's my yeah. favorite in the film. Yeah, that there's a, there's there was a great reaction when people saw Peter Sellers for the first time because you're getting him very early on in his career and he doesn't quite look the way that you think he's going right. to. He looks a little like Elvis Costello to yeah, me. Yeah, some in that people movie. mentioned that to me after the film was over. Yeah, and afterwards, uh, you know, we're, we're basically going to give everybody an equal shot here. But <laughs> Herbert Lom's character in that film also plays very well because he's the hothead. And he's the one person who is reacting to this the way a normal human being would, which is saying, why are we why are we allowing this woman to drive our planet to the ground? Somebody's got to step up and do something. And so that the fact that he's able to play the frustration makes that character pop. But but you're right. The big guy is kind of the audience favorite because there's some real heart with that character. And I think people respond to that. I was going to say with Herbert Lom and was going to fanboy out about him that my point, <laughs> I think, with that with that movie is even though the fan favorite or more of the really funny, hilarious characters like Danny Green as one round or Alec Guinness as uh, Professor Marcus. But the Herbert Lom, I think, is kind of the the most valuable player in a way for that movie because the tone shifts so much from, well, not totally. I mean, it's a very dark comedy all the way through. But in the latter part of the movie, it does get pretty dark. Like, these guys are all turning against each other. And why I think Herbert Lom is such an interesting character in that movie is he barely gets any funny lines or funny business to do. He's the one who's always like, we've got to get on with it, right? Like you were saying, Vince, the odd oh, was saying, why are we letting all this stuff get in our way? So he, and he's so intense and so threatening that he is the one, I think, who's there always reminding the audience that, it's all funny and these guys are doing wacky stuff, but these guys are really hardened criminals. And this is a pretty serious thing they're undertaking here. And it's a very dangerous thing. So it's not just like three stooges. <laughs> we're all doing shtick. So when he, so him being there all throughout that movie, I think makes the link between the really funny stuff and the more intense stuff work, which is a hard thing to do in these movies. A lot of them, sometimes if they're more comedic and then they get darker, it just kind of falls apart, right? Like they can't quite sustain it. But this one, it works so well. And I think it's largely because of him, because he links those things together. I think that's very true. He's the closest the movie has to a straight man. And the that's always a tricky part to write well, because as you say, he's not getting any of the jokes, but he's driving everything that happens in it. He's the constant reminder that, no, at some point this ends with somebody in the ground. <laughs> and that's that's such a tricky part to write and to play. But that combination of William Rose and Herbert Lom just pulls it off beautifully. Yeah, and I I think it must have been particularly hard for him to play because when you're in a movie like that where there's so much funny stuff and all the other characters around you have so much funny stuff to do that and you're the one person who has to play it straight, that the temptation must be really strong to pipe up and be like, oh, no, I can be funny too or let me do a little bit of shtick here too. But he just played it straight all the way through, which was amazing. And also a bit ironic because Herbert Lom ultimately most famous internationally probably for comedy roles in the Pink Panther movies. Right, he's Inspector, Inspector Dreyfus. Yeah, yeah, he's the one who's always driven insane by Clouseau <laughs> and is always trying to kill him. But he was a brilliant actor, and this I think was absolutely one of his best performances. Oh yeah, well it's like he knew that at some point when he got to work with Sellers again, he would get to go over the top if he wanted. <laughs> I think he was biding his time. He was smart enough to know oh, I'll get my chance to play big a little later on. Right, I see Blake Edwards in our future, so <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll get our, we'll get our jokes in there. Okay. Great. Yeah. So I'm um, glad to hear the festival went, went really well. Is, um, I mean, in all the places it goes across the country, but it sounds like in Seattle in particular, 
that you guys have had these audiences coming for a long time who are always really into it. That's very true. I mean, we, we the festival's put on here in conjunction with SIF uh, Cinema, which is the year-round operation of the Seattle International Film Festival, and they have a fairly loyal, they have a really loyal audience for the, for, for, for the festival, which runs from May into June. It's actually the longest film festival in the United States. It runs a full month. And so they've got a hardcore fan base, and now they do regular programming year-round, and all of those people are aware of Noir City and come out to it. There's there's a there's a real stable of regulars. If you ask Eddie about the Seattle Festival, he will be able to reel off a lot of a people lot of who people, have yeah. never missed a screening in all the years that we've done it here. So so Seattle is is representing the Noir City crowd pretty well. Film Noir Foundation's Noir City e-magazine features contributions from writers from many different backgrounds and areas of expertise. Vince is the co-managing editor of the magazine, so what can you tell us about the process, the overall approach of putting together each issue? My specific charge with the magazine is uh, to cover contemporary noir. Uh, we, uh, the Steve Cronenberg is, our, is the other managing editor, and he handles the classic noir period, and I do... Uh, films, TV, anything that comes after 1960. And so I feel like my main responsibility is coming up with ideas, that w story ideas that, that, that will slot into that nicely, and also recruiting writers. One of the first things that I did when Eddie asked me to come on board as managing editor, one of the first pitches I made to him was to add the prime cuts section, uh, where every issue of the magazine we spotlight a neo-noir and have uh initially it was a crime writer but now that's expanding out to film writers as well and we say pick a film made after 1960 a neo-noir that means something to you and we give them the room to go long on it so the the role of the editors then and me not knowing much about how any magazines or publications are put together so it's through the whole process then it sounds like it's not just writers are turning stuff in and you're reading over it and going back and forth with them it's also really about generating the ideas and getting in contact with the people to say hey this person would be good for that or you have some ideas that this person could be good to write for yes that's that's very much the case i mean it's it's very it's very hands-on so uh a lot of my conversations with eddie and steve and michael cronenberg who is the the graphic designer and such an essential part of the magazine uh will be trying to come up with with material that we can cover as far out in advance as we can so like we'll we'll start blocking out the theme issues uh like the comics issue the television issue that we did we'll block those out as far in advance as we possibly can and that means, you know, bouncing ideas off each other and then trying to figure out who do we have in our stable or who is an author that we can approach, who would be a good match for this material. And then once material comes in, um, editing, copy editing, every stage of that. So I, so it, in my capacity as managing editor, I do a little bit of everything. And so then some of the articles then you'll put together with a particular theme, with an issue in mind, and then... If you get to a point where you don't quite have enough articles or sometimes you hold those in reserve and say, OK, maybe a little bit down the line, we'll come back to this. We'll get some more people and really build a whole issue around this idea. That's very true. Every time we've done a theme issue, we've ended up with more material than we could we could comfortably fit into a single issue of the magazine. 
or there are ideas where we say that's a really good idea that we're just going to table and and do a little bit later on uh we just did the tv issue and what was fascinating to me about the response to that was a how many people loved the idea and b how many of them said but you didn't have an article on <laughs> blank everybody was suggesting another and and i would say to everyone who who made this pointed this out to me you're actually talking about we did discuss this very subject as and as a possible idea for, for for the for the magazine and we just couldn't get it in but at some point we will we will go, go back and 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 cover it the way that it needs to be covered so the main thing we've learned from doing the theme issues is we can work all of this stuff in further down the road we talked at one point, you know, do we want to have another comics issue because there was so much material that we didn't get to and we thought it might be better to, to cover comics on a more regular basis. And the same thing is true of television. There's so much material out there that instead of doing separate issues devoted to that, we should be incorporating that coverage on a regular basis. So it must be fun when people are chiming in, hey, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Like, well, we <laughs> did talk about that. But, or, hey, you know, if you want to do it, go ahead and send it in and uh, you can get it into a later issue. Oh, yeah. That's actually the easiest way to end that conversation. When somebody <laughs> says, you didn't write an article about this. And we say, yeah, that's good. Why don't you pull some, put some thoughts down and send them in? And that right. usually buys us some time. And uh, you mentioned having certain features running across uh, multiple issues. And, of course, you've been doing one Vince for many years now, the Cocktails and Crime. So tell us a bit about that and kind of where that came from and what's your approach been with that? That's actually that's that's the one regular contribution that I have to the magazine. It's a lot of fun. It actually grew out of Eddie's old column. Eddie used to write a column uh, under the J.J. Hunsecker guys from Sweet Smell of Success. And it got to the point where he wasn't able to do that anymore. But he's a big fan of what used to be called three dots columns, where it's just sort of stringing together uh, a lot of news and notes not really organized around any particular theme, just what might be of interest to the readers. I think Larry King may be the last person yeah. <laughs> to keep this tradition alive until we brought it back for, for the magazine. That's just a, a, an ongoing process of collecting material over the, the, the course of the, the quarter. I'll set it, I'll, I'll just, I'll keep a running tally of, of any interesting noir-related news that comes up for the course of three or four months. Uh, pull that together, it's usually the last thing that's that's put into the magazine and uh the cocktails thing came out of i had a column uh, 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 the first column that i wrote was book reviews that included a cocktail at the end and i assumed once i stopped doing that column that the cocktails would also go by the boards but eddie said no no we need to keep that going and so uh i'll try to tie in the the whatever the cocktail is in each particular issue to the season or to some of the other material that's in the magazine um and that's actually the most fun thing of course vince has written um a book about cocktails too so he's just naturally the guy to be writing about cocktails <laughs> what was the name yes, of that down, book? down the hatch one man's one-year odyssey through classic cocktail recipes and lore and oh. i won't lie i have actually i've cribbed from that book once or twice to fill out the column because as i said the column's kind of put together at the last minute but uh yeah, that's where that's where all the cocktail material first started. 
well, some cocktails have to be worth coming back to, right? You can't just write about them. Oh, once. absolutely. <laughs> yes. And then just forget about it. And of course, in the Noir Alley series on Turner Classic Movies, we've seen Eddie doing that with introducing um, or emphasizing within the movie if they have a particular cocktail that one character ordered, he'll talk about that and they'll, they'll do a little uh, well, I, video thing. I about love it. how the uh, TCM will actually pull together cocktail recipe segments. Remember when they did uh, Blue Gardenia, they did the uh, Polynesian Pearl Diver, which is essential to the plot. One of the original tiki drinks, and uh, they, they gave the drink the treatment it deserved. inspiration for the Keenan's Rene Patrick novels grew out of their Noir City e-magazine article about costume design called Not Always Basic Black, The Noir Fashions of Edith Head, from the fall 2015 Women in Film Noir issue. We'll talk about the novels coming up in a bit, but for now let's get some background on the real-life designer. How did you decide to write about Edith Head in particular for this article? Well, as we just talked about, um, Vince is the managing editor of the Noir City magazine, and I thought, there's time, it's time to get an article about costume design in the magazine, because I feel like I hadn't seen that. And it's such an important part of the, my love anyway, of film noir. And I think for a lot of people who go to festivals, you know, people who they dress up in their vintage clothes and they're very into the style and design of film noir. Um, so I thought, okay, time to write an article about film noir costume. And I started researching and I came across Edith Head and read a lot about her career and all the film noir that she worked on and um, decided, okay, well, this article just needs to focus on Edith Head, but also gave me the idea for writing some mystery novels based with Edith Head as a character. So in, in the article, did you find that if you had covered, say, just the costume designs in a few movies, maybe the theme of what connected them wouldn't be as strong if it was multiple designers or that focusing on the one designer kind of made more sense for. Really, I just think that the, that topic is just too broad that if you wrote an article that tried to include all the designers, if you want to get like Jean-Louis and his work for Gilda in there, you'd end up with an article that really just skimmed the surface. And so he said, okay, well just focus on one at a time. And I think it's actually time for another costume designer to be featured in War City, but um, we've been working we'll, on the book. We'll talk about this in yeah. the next editorial meeting. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and of course, if you're going to start with any costume designer, not just film noir, but in classic Hollywood in general, uh, it's definitely Edith Head, who is really the most iconic and legendary costume designer in Hollywood history, I think, without a doubt, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they put her on a postage stamp. That that's him. you have officially reached iconic status when you were put on a U.S. postage stamp, and it's amazing to us how many people know her now from the character of Edna Mode in The Incredibles, the costume designer in the movie The Incredibles who does all the superhero uniforms, is clearly based on Edith Head. The the, the Pixar folks have have acknowledged as much, and that's how many people talk to us about the book. Say they were introduced to her as a character. Right, with the, the glasses and the bangs and yeah. 
and that kind of that attitude, that imperious attitude of telling you what needed to be done. Yes, a diminutive <laughs> stature, but the yes. ability to fill a room. Right, and uh, that character in the movie was voiced by the director, by Brad Bird. Yes, Brad Bird. Bird. Voice for himself, which is a great performance. And you just mentioned the the glasses, of course, that they have her wearing in that movie. And as uh, as we see with all the pictures of Edith Head, the dark glasses. So I had never realized that wasn't just kind of an affectation that or a stylistic touch that she had, but it was really a very particular, had a very particular utility for the time that she was working in. So can you tell us a bit about that? Well, that's right, because um, when you're working in a black and white film, of course, not the costumes aren't all going to be fabricated in black and white. There's colors, right? And, and different colors and different types of fabric. And so what the costume designers would do is take a piece of blue tinted glass and hold it up to the actual fabrics and um, dresses to get a feel for how it would look in black and white. And so Edith was using that. And at some point she said, well, it would be a lot easier if I just had a pair of glasses made from this blue tinted, the blue tinted glass. Um, and so that's what she did. And so she wore those a lot and people thought, you know, made her a little bit inscrutable. And so that didn't hurt either, I'm sure, in the political climate of the studios. The glasses serve multiple purposes. It was it was part of her image. It, 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 it created a signature look. It also allowed her to kind of hold something back in reserve. And there was for, for many years, you know, this technical benefit to it. It allowed her to see how everything was going to photograph. Did other costume designers back then, when there were still lots of black and white movies, did they start using glasses like that as well? Did you kind of start that trend among them? I don't know if they actually used glasses, but I'm sure they did use the holding up of, yes. of a piece of, of blue tinted glass. That was sure. a fairly standard piece of equipment is that they would have this this tinted piece of glass so that they could tell at a glance how, how something would actually photograph on camera. And, and of course, as part of the, the studio filmmaking, you would do costume tests. So you would take photos in black and white and and even do the character walking, you know, the actor walking back and forth in the costume. So you would see it in black and white, but seeing using the blue glass would allow you even at just the fabric stage to get a feel for how it would look in black and white. Yeah, so you just took that extra mile and just all the time <laughs> seeing yeah. the world through through black and white. Always thinking that, Edith. Always <laughs> looking for an angle. That's one of the things we love about her. Right. So let's talk a bit about some of the, the movies you covered and the fashions you covered in your article. So you started with This Gun for Hire, as we mentioned, uh, as you came down to co-introduce that movie uh, at Noir City Hollywood. So where does that fit in with um, with Edith and her overall career or her style for noir? Well, I feel like that um, This Gun for Hire is a really good example of how you can use fashion and costuming to enhance an actress's physical appearance. So Veronica Lake was famously very petite. She was short. How tall was she? Four foot 11. Four foot 11. Edith described her as the smallest normal sized human she had ever met. And that meant something coming from Edith, who was 5'1". 5'1", right. Yeah, she, did, she was not exactly towering over anybody. And so to, to, to look at Veronica Lake and think, wow, she's small, meant something coming from Edith. And so in the article, we wanted to talk about the fashion tricks that Edith used to give the impression of height to Veronica Lake. So the long sleeves on the gowns, the plunging necklines, um, the hats and, and high, um, like kind of the, the height of the hats and the height of the shoes too. <laughs> Some glimpses of really high platform heels that Veronica Lake is wearing. So all the tricks that she used to make Veronica Lake appear taller in the film. Really, when she does her first number, the, the, the first magician's number, 
there are one or two shots when she's walking where you can see how unbelievably high the shoes are. Yeah, it's almost like Mae West territory. And, and the dress is designed to conceal that fact, but because she's walking around and doing magic tricks as part of the performance, every once in a while you get a glimpse of this and you realize how they thought through this wardrobe to the last detail. And we wanted to start there just because it's 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 basically the first Mar that Edith worked on. I mean, she did work on, I want to say it's Underworld. Very early on, was that? Oh, the silent. Yeah, yeah. In 1927, was, but yeah, that was really her that. first opportunity yeah. to to show what she could do in in film noir. And you also mentioned in the article her work on Vertigo in particular, but her most famous partnership, at least with the director throughout her career, was with Hitchcock. They worked together many, many times, starting with Notorious, right in the mid 40s, and then all yes. the way to Hitchcock's very last movie, which is Family Plot. All the way through Family Plot, she didn't do every single movie for him. There were a few that that uh, where he worked with uh, with other costume designers, but he kept coming back to her. And Hitchcock was 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 very famous for being incredibly meticulous with every detail in his movie and everything planned out to the smallest little. Um, uh, you know, detail. And so how did Edith work with him on that? Or was there something about her and her design that he really latched onto saying, yeah, this person is paying as much attention to detail as I am? Well, you, you mentioned Vertigo. I mean, that's the perfect example because that's a movie where he had the screenwriters describe Kim Novak's wardrobe in the script. It was that important to him. Right. And that important to the plot of the film. And I think just generally Edith was, very much a collaborator. I mean, she knew that she needed to work both with the actresses and with the directors. And so she was happy to sit down and talk to Hitchcock about what, how he envisioned the characters and what he wanted. And then, you know, use her expertise to make that happen in the most appealing way for the actress. She loved working with Alfred Hitchcock because of his specificity she would always say whenever she was designing a, a character's wardrobe that the script was her Bible, that she would never dress the star, she would dress the character. And she appreciated Hitchcock's level of commitment where he knew exactly how he wanted the characters to dress and why. There was often a very specific reason why he wanted them in, in, in their wardrobe. And that was something that spoke to her approach to her job anyway. So they were kind of a match made in heaven in that regard. And with some of the actresses she got to work with, uh, in particular on Rear Window and To Catch a Thief, working with Grace Kelly, who was, of course, one of the most iconic uh, you know, fashion models in the world or through her, uh, through her characters. And in particular with Rear Window, her character is a fashion model. And talking yes. about the world of fashion and the specific details of clothes is a very big part of her character. Oh, indeed. And if Edith had a muse, it's safe to say it was Grace Kelly. Those two films, Rear Window, and in particular To Catch a Thief, are the ones that she would single out as her best work. And that came about because she was working with Hitchcock, who had a philosophy of costume when it came to his characters, and Grace Kelly, who had this innate poise and an understanding of the importance of wardrobe in her personal life and on screen. Right. And she, I mean, just the way she, so Rear Window, of course, is that such a very enclosed set, but the way she walked around the room there as if it were a fashion runway or just lies herself on the divan with the skirt arranged so beautifully outside, she really knew how to wear clothes and how to present them to best effect in the films. To Catch a Thief was the one that, that Edith would always point to and say, this is the absolute best that I can do. 
it was it was the perfect situation, the perfect cast of collaborators. Wardrobe is such a key part of the story, especially when we consider the ending, the the costume ball that that, that plays out at the end. Uh, that's she knew as she was doing that film that it was the pinnacle of her career, and I think that period in Edith's in Edith's work life, the late nineteen fifties, that's when she was at the top of her game. Let's talk a bit about uh, Edith and the work that she did outside of her primary studio, with which for most of her career was Paramount. Um, and recently in the TV miniseries Feud, Betty and Joan, about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and the making of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. In the aftermath of that movie leading up to the Oscars for the year of 1962, they have a little scene where Joan Crawford trying to uh, work details behind the scenes about who's going to win the Best Actress Oscar. She mentions that Edith Head was designing her gown for the ceremony. And then when I looked it up, I saw that Edith Head had also designed Betty Davis's clothes for that same ceremony. So I guess she was right in the middle of that feud. Yes, so what, um, what was kind of the situation back then with costume designers and designing not just for the movies, but for stuff for the movie stars outside of the movies, in particular for the Oscars? Well, for Edith had a great working relationship with Betty Davis. I'll just start there because she was, um, Betty Davis would have her come to other studios and design her gowns for her. So she did that an iconic um, brown ball gown for Betty Davis and All About Eve. And if you noticed in Feud, the Oscar gown that Betty Davis wears is actually very similar to that gown for All About Eve, at least in my mind it is. Um, but Edith kind of hooked on to the Academy Awards and was a consultant for the Academy Awards for many years and would send a letter out as women were getting ready to buy their gowns and say, well, here are the strictures, nothing too low cut, nothing too short. Everything had to be tasteful. Um, and so it's not surprising that she would be actually designing gowns for some of the top stars for the award show. She was the wardrobe consultant to the Oscars for uh, on and off for 20 years. And that was an opportunity for her often to any 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 starlets who uh, weren't affiliated with a particular studio or who didn't have a relationship with a designer. Edith would pull them aside and volunteer to design their their wardrobe. So it was sort of a stealth fashion show for her when the Oscars happened during that period because a lot of her original dresses would be seen on the telecast. Yeah, definitely a good source for advertising. And you mentioned her <laughs> working with Betty Davis outside of Paramount. So in classic Hollywood, when almost everyone was under contract to their own studio, loaning out people between the different studios that was pretty common for actors i know so you'd see some actor who was under contract for one studio showing up in in multiple movies for another studio but i didn't quite know that for crew members that that would happen too that even for costume designers they might be loaned from one studio to the other so was that pretty common or was edith kind of an exception where people just really gravitated to her and said no we've got to get her to work on this movie for us i think it was I don't think it was exceptional for Edith, but I do think it was exceptional for crew members. So it would be really kind of the top of the line, maybe costume designer or a cinematographer or something. But it wasn't necessarily way down the line of people doing that. So Edith did for Barbara Stanwyck as well. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it was tied into to the stars. It would be a request of a particular actress. And Barbara Stanwyck and Betty Davis were the two who frequently, wherever they were working, would have it written into their contracts that Edith would design their wardrobe. So, so Edith would, would, would do Stanwyck's costumes at any number of studios in the 1940s. Yeah, and Stanwyck had gotten started at 
uh, did a lot of Paramount movies earlier in her career, as you guys mentioned in your novels. Um, but Betty Davis, I think, was never under contract there. So how did she originally get started working with Edith? Was there one particular project or just she said, I've got to have this person design the clothes for me going forward? I have to say, I actually don't know. That's a good question. They, they worked together on a number of things that established a, a pretty steady working relationship by the time of All About Eve, because that was was a, a sticking point when Betty Davis stepped in for Claudette Colbert fairly late, that she wanted Edith to design her wardrobe, which was not exactly what the, uh, the costume department of 20th Century Fox, which is making the movie, wanted to have happen. But they said, all right, since, since Davis is coming in this late, we'll allow this to happen. Uh, so they'd already had a fairly steady working relationship by that point. Okay, yeah. And uh, I mean, of course, that movie was such a huge success that then it would make sense afterwards she, that Betty Davis would say, well, okay, <laughs> no more of anyone else. <laughs> let's go back to the person who helped make it happen. So now let's hear from Edith herself in a short film called The Costume Designer, which was made by the Motion Picture Academy in the late 1940s to give audiences a behind-the-scenes look at how movies get made. Where the costume designer contributes most is in providing those values which make costumes right dramatically. Let's see now. Girl is young, about 20. Her sweetheart has just left her after a quarrel. She's going out this evening with another boy, a friend of the family who means nothing to her. How would she dress? Say in something white and gay and sparkling. What about material? Jersey, perhaps embroidered in sequins. In the story, she does come from a family of means. So there's no false note there. A dress like that would give her an air, too. Make her look defiant and at the same time alluring. The first Rene Patrick mystery novel, Designed for Dying, was published last year in 2016, and the second book, Dangerous to Know, was published two months ago in April of 2017. Both of them feature Edith Head as one of the main characters, along with many other real-life Hollywood personalities from the late 1930s. But the main narrator and protagonist of the books is a young woman named Lillian Frost. So let's start with how you decided to write mystery novels in particular involving Edith Head and how the character of Lillian developed out of that. Well, we've always both been really big mystery fans. And so when I was researching Edith Head's life and career for the articles, I just thought she would slot in really well to a mystery series. And the idea of a series was part and parcel of this. Well, I, what I responded to in the idea was I had never seen costumes as an avenue into Hollywood history. And I thought that given the longevity of Edith's career, the fact that she dressed almost everyone and that she could easily be connected to anyone she hadn't dressed meant that we could bring anyone onto the page that we wanted. It wouldn't be a stretch at all. But that costume design in particular would be a way to go behind the scenes and to uh, tell stories that wouldn't otherwise lend themselves to a kind of a Hollywood novel. And there's also the fact that if we tracked the entire series through Edith's career, it would be a way to tell a history of Hollywood that focused on women and their contributions behind the scenes and in front of the camera. It just seemed like a natural idea to me. Right, and one that really hadn't been done before. A lot of Hollywood mystery novels are just generally Hollywood novels that you hear are from the male point of view, and often they're very hard-boiled, and we wanted to do something a little bit different. 
So tell us a little bit about the the main character in your books, Lillian Frost, and how she works with Edith. When we started writing the book and doing research into Edith's life, the one thing that every book agreed on, because Edith, she was, as Rosemary said, she was very inscrutable. She played a lot of things close close to the vest. And so even though there are three biographies about her, they tend to disagree on a lot of details. So it's tough to pin anything down, which on the one for us is great. I mean, it means if we say something is true, there's not really a whole lot to contradict it. But the one thing that they all agree on is that she worked around the clock. That it, it, partly because she was she was never really confident that that she was going to stay on as the costume designer. She was always operating from a position of they're going to fire me. Hmm. I like I'm not somebody with this this fantastic background in costume design like like my contemporaries or like Travis Banton and Howard Greer, the people who brought me on. She was always convinced that she was she was on the chopping block and as such was was took on any task that came her way which meant she couldn't exactly set aside her sketch pad and race off to the trocadero to chase down a lead out of necessity she was going to be what what they call an armchair detective and she needed uh, a leg man or in this case a leg woman to do the heavy lifting for her and that led us to lillian that's right and when we were thinking about lillian we said well who would come to hollywood who what kind of a young woman would be in hollywood at that time we thought well she has to be an aspiring actress, at least at first. And so we used our New York background and said, okay, she comes from New York and she goes out to Hollywood because she won a chance at a screen test and she's the world's worst actress. So she gets a job at a department store and in the course of the novel, she and um, Edith run into each other and end up trying to solve a crime. We love the idea of having this character be someone who was uh, a huge fan of the movies, just completely obsessed with them, but had the, the the presence of mind to realize maybe this isn't what I'm meant to do with my life. Maybe I'm. I, I, she very quickly accepts the fact that she is not a good actress, and just decides I enjoy living in Los Angeles. I enjoy being close to the movies in this way, and I'm going to to get on about my life and not make the movies a central part of it and then suddenly finds herself like in the thick of all this Hollywood intrigue. Uh, Self-awareness is definitely a good trait for uh, fighting against crime. And the particular way that she became a huge movie fan, I like that detail in the book that comes from a family connection, right? From the, her uncle who raised her. Right. Um, In the book, her uncle Danny is working at Paramount studios in Astoria and they had them. That's where they started. And he works as a set painter and kind of handyman in studios. And he would bring her to watch the old silence being made there. And that's partly just our New York pride coming through again, because we're both from Queens and I'm actually from uh, Astoria or the neighborhood adjacent to Astoria and always loved the fact that that's kind of where the American movie business got its start. And uh, the studio that Paramount was housed in in Astoria is now actually the home of the Museum of the Moving Image. And we find out some more about Uncle Danny, just an aside in the second book, that um, he's a little bit like the like your, the 1930s equivalent of your uncle who just sends terrible email forwards all the time. <laughs> like, gets, his news from, gets his news from memes on Facebook, like, okay, Uncle Danny, we get it. <laughs> yes, there's a there is an element of that, and we're, we want at some point to bring to bring Uncle Danny onto the page, actually, because because Lillian owes a lot to him, and uh, and we love the character. He's sort of like our uh, 
He's like Thomas Mitchell, I think, a little bit in our heads. You know, the oh uh, yeah, the yeah, actor, yeah. Yeah, he is a he is a great character, and of course, he yeah. helped to raise a uh, very fine, upstanding young lady who we <laughs> find out much about throughout the books, which is uh, you know great details there. So let's talk a bit about the the mechanics of writing mysteries. Something I wonder about with a lot of mystery writers is your approach for putting the plot together in terms of how the ending fits in. So has your approach been that you decide on what the ending is going to be in terms of who done it, which character is going to be the, the killer, and then you work your way back? Or are you more working your way through it and saying, okay, here's the basic scenario of the plot. Here are some characters who are involved. Let's work our way through and figure out kind of which direction we want to go in. Well, Hagai, you have hit on one of the key questions in the mystery community. This is this is something that comes up all the time. The way it's the way the question is phrased is, "Are you a pantser or a plotter?" Which means, do you write by the seat of your pants, where you don't actually know what's going to happen next, in the hope that you're going to surprise yourself, or do you plot everything out in advance? And I am not ashamed to say that we are in the latter camp. We plotted everything out from start to finish. Um, we talked it out a lot first before we even wrote anything down. So I think we talked our way through the characters and what the plot was going to be, came upon the ending, and then said, okay, well, let's get an outline on paper and see if that really works. And so that's what we did. The main reason we went with that approach was just because it was a collaboration. There were two of us working on the book at the same time, and it was vitally important that we each understood what was happening, not just in each chapter, but in each scene. We didn't. We we necessarily didn't want to surprise each other, and that's just my instinct anyway. Partly because uh, I come out of magazine journalism, where you're given a word count before you start, and you know exactly how much room you have and how little a margin for error you have. And also because I've done some screenwriting, where the same thing is very much the case. You often you have to plot everything out in advance because you've got to hit certain beats on certain pages. And that's just uh, how I work. And uh, w when we started collaborating on this, it was something that Rosemary responded to pretty naturally. Right, because I really, I hadn't written anything before, certainly not anything as ambitious as a novel. And I needed to know that my map was there, my map of the territory. So we got a bulletin board, some index cards, and kind of laid it all out. And the collaborative process you mentioned of writing together, that does make sense that you would want to have it plotted out so that you don't kind of go in different directions. Then it might become a more of a choose-your-own-adventure kind of story. Right? Exactly. I mean, there's, there are plenty of opportunities for surprise as we were working on this because the way that we would approach a scene, word choice, there'd always be a joke or a turn of phrase that would be unexpected. So there was plenty of room for, for each of us to discover something new in the other person's work. But when it comes to the big pieces... We didn't want to leave any of that to chance. We we wanted to know we, we wanted to know the destination before we started, and then you know have all of the discovery be in the little moments along the way. So let's talk a bit about the book's titles. So the titles, as I mentioned earlier, the first book is called um, "Designed for Dying," and the second one is called "Dangerous to Know." So did you have other titles in mind or how did you get to or were some of those always what you were thinking would be the titles? Because with Design for Dying, a title I'm particularly fond of, the reference, of course, being to Design for Living, the great uh, Ernst Lubitsch comedy from the early 30s, which is based in Noel Coward play. So was that always and the title you had in mind? One of favorite movies of all time, yeah, by the, the way. The first yeah. book was always Design for Dying because that, yeah, that is one of my favorite movies ever, ever. Um, and... The idea that it plays on the words of design, Lincoln Zedith is a designer. We just knew that that had to be the title. 
Um, and then when we sent it out into the world, everyone loved the title, which was really great. No one, we didn't even consider anything else. For it, was, it was a complete surprise, actually, that everybody responded to the title because you always hear those stories that you, you will submit a work under a title and even if people love the book, they'll say, but you have to call it something else. And we were just waiting for that, that conversation to happen. And to our amazement, it never happened. I mean, we were also expecting people to tell us that we were going to have to change the pen name. And uh, that never happened either. Yeah. We, were, we were lucky that way. Well, we thought the same thing was going to happen with Dangerous. That with Dangerous to know that that title wasn't going to stick. And, and th that actually, th there were a number of conversations about possibly changing that title, but ultimately... Uh, our publishers at Forge came around and said, no, we like that. And th there were that, yeah. story reasons to keep it there. Right, because the the plot is, it's a mystery. I won't say it's a spy plot, but there's spying and things involved. And there's some hidden knowledge there that is dangerous to, uh, to our Lillian and other people in the book. But also it ties into uh, the, the film of the same name, Dangerous to Know. Because uh, that is a movie that Edith designed the costumes for. It stars Akeem Tamaroff and Anna Mae Wong. And it's hugely important in Edith's career to the extent that Edith saw Anna Mae Wong's hairstyle in that movie and said, oh, that's what I want. So the hairstyle that she would keep for the rest of her life, she actually pilfered from Anna Mae Wong in this movie. As good a source as any to, <laughs> to take from, right? <laughs> and um, I should just mention as an aside, the... Uh, the pseudonym you write under, Renee Patrick, you have on your website on ReneePatrickBooks.com, and I'll have a link in the uh, podcast notes as well, specifically to the section of your website where you talk all about how you came up with the name and um, why you decided to write under a pseudonym and what the origin of it was, which is an interesting story. So with Dangerous to Know in particular, then, as you mentioned, that comes from the movie title, which was a big one for, for Edith and for just the double meaning of the mystery novel and the spine. Were there any other titles you considered or once you hit on that one, was that kind of okay, that, that really works and let's go with that? That was really it for us. I mean, I'm sure we batted a few things around, but I don't even think anything else got onto paper or even sent to the publisher. There, were, there was some thought of kind of repeating the, the, the basic structure of Design for Dying. So it would be, you know, it would be an alliterative title. Um, and that's something we're actually thinking about for the next book. But I'm, I'm happy that we avoided that because you don't want to set yourself up to say, oh, God, it has to have the same two letters at the start of this. What are we doing here? Yeah. You don't want to you don't want to box yourself in and have to do something. So I'm actually kind of happy that we avoided that fate. And uh, with Design for Dying, Design for Living in particular, I just wanted to mention my favorite little Lubitsch touch in Design for Living is when late in the movie, when Frederick March's character is a struggling playwright, when he has a huge hit play in London and he comes to one of the shows and the crowd's there and he's going around to the people in the ticket booth and everything saying, how's it going? Good, good. Everyone says, oh, great. It's all, it's terrific. Everyone's here. And then at the end of that little sequence, he goes to the, the washroom and he asks the washroom attendant, busy? And the attendant says, tremendous. <laughs> so if the washroom attendant is getting big business, then you know the you know your play is a big box office hit. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was Lubitsch for you. Okay, so let's talk about some of the, the real-life people and events that you included in your books. There are some very famous names that you have in there, like um, Barbara Stanwyck and Bob Hope and Marlena Dietrich making some really interesting appearances, but some really big drivers of the plots and of the characters in your books are real, based on real-life people who are not as well-known as big Hollywood stars but have fascinating stories behind them. One in particular who you mentioned earlier is Travis Banton who was a, uh, also a very successful costume designer and was Edith Head's boss at that time at Paramount. So 
you tell us a bit about him and how you worked him into the books in particular? Well, we really needed to get him into the book because he was somebody who, um, like you said, he was Edith's boss at the time. He was the head of design at Paramount. Um, but his position was a bit tenuous and the studio wasn't particularly happy with how he was doing at that time. So his glory days had been a couple of years before that. And he was an amazing designer and the king of glamour, you know, addressing Marlena Dietrich and Carol Lombard and those kind of people. Um, but because his position was tenuous, it also made Edith's position tenuous. And we really wanted to work that into the book. She wasn't sure if she was going to be, if she was going to have her job, if Paramount decided that Travis Banton had to go. There so, are a, a lot of questions. Of, I mean, there are recent histories of Paramount that still repeat the story that Edith actually had a hand in pushing Travis Banton out because she wanted his job. And we sort of wanted to to counter that because in our research, it was very clear. She was convinced that when Banton went, she was going to go. She was certain that Paramount was going to replace her with a bigger name. And that was actually the case. They were auditioning designers from Broadway on a regular basis. They would uh, bring in couture designers from, from Europe and from New York and have them do one or two movies at a time just to see how they fit into the Paramount family. And she was certain that she was going to be cast out on her ear when Travis left. And considering her background, what, one of the things we, that, that, that we are fascinated by when it comes to Edith is that she didn't have the pedigree that all of these other designers had. Uh, she didn't work at a couture house. She didn't study design coming up. She'd been a school teacher before she started at Paramount. Was that uh, she was always sure that uh, her days were numbered. And... Uh, she wanted Travis Banton to remain in place because the longer he was there, the longer she was going to be there. What we right. found out um, from talking to uh, costume design experts and the archivists at Paramount was that the pretty much the sole reason why Edith was eventually given his job was that it was the most cost-effective decision. At, the, at, at that moment, she was the cheapest alternative open to them. And the thinking in 1938, when she was finally given the job, is, well, at some point in the next year or so, a bigger name will become available and we'll just phase her out and bring that person in. And Edith decided that wasn't going to happen. Right. So she did a great job. She worked, like, like Vince said, she worked very hard and she solidified her position there and made friends with all the directors and the stars there. And um, they just kept her on. One of the characters we're hoping to bring on um, at, at some point in the future book is Oleg Cassini, the designer who uh, was later married to Gene Tierney. And he worked at Paramount very briefly and had a contentious relationship with Edith. But one thing that he always said about her was that she was the greatest politician that he ever met, that she had an uncanny feel for how to navigate the studio politics, all the changes that were happening. She knew how to enlist the actresses and get them on her side. She was very canny about that. And she was also very smart about uh, slowly turning herself into a public figure, making herself known as a costume designer. As you said earlier, Hagai, she's, she's kind of the one person everyone knows as a costume designer. That was very deliberate. That all came out of her fear that she was going to lose her job once Travis Banton was let go. Sounds like those will be some fun conversations to write between Oleg Cassini <laughs> and Edith Ed. That'll be great. Um, so a couple of the other uh, real-life people or stories that you 
that you wrote about, uh, one very interesting character in both books is Addison Rice, who is a character you invented, but who apparently was based on a real person. So what is the story yes. of that real person and, and how that happened? So Addison Rice is based on Atwater Kent, who, if anybody is a fan of old time radio and actual radios, <laughs> would know his name because he had a very had a lot of patents in um, early radio and had a manufacturing plant in Pennsylvania for radios. And so he was a big name in radio in the late 20s and early 30s. Um, but he ended up retiring and moving from Pennsylvania to Los Angeles in around 1936. And so he shut down the plant on the East Coast and he moved to Los Angeles because he loved the movies. He wanted to be in Hollywood. So he bought a big house up in Beverly Hills and just started throwing parties and meeting all the stars. And very quickly made himself an essential part of the of the nightlife in Hollywood and befriended pretty much any actress that you would care to name. So all of the all of the big name actresses uh, became part of his social circle very, very quickly. And the detail about his life that always fascinated us is when he died, he basically left every name actress in Hollywood some money in his wealth. He just he listed them all and everyone got, you know, a couple of thousand dollars or something. So not some huge amount, um, but he had them all down there because they they were all very dear to him. I think. How did you come across his uh, story in particular and deciding to put him into the books or a character based on him? I did a lot of research in reading um, old movie magazines, many of which are online, which is great, um, and old newspapers. So it was going through some Los Angeles Times from that period. Um, and just reading that, oh, society columns and gossip columns. And his name came up. And I'm like, who is this guy? Because I've never Spotted heard of him Spotted at Atwater Kent's party. I mean, it was right. it was a just phrase like that. that you would see all the time. And it very quickly, you know, like, came to is? us. Who is Atwater Kent? What's who, <laughs> Why is he throwing all of these fabulous parties? Right. So I did some research and saw some pictures of his house online. Beautiful estate. Um, and so it just he became a, quite the character in my mind. And we turned him into Addison Rice. And that was a change. That was one of the changes in, in the book that happened late was that we were not sure towards the end of, of Design for Dying. We knew who the killer was and what the outcome of that case was going to be. But we hadn't completely committed to a course of action for Lillian. Where was she going to, to go? Uh, where was she going to work once that that book was over? And Addison eventually provided uh, an opportunity that we were really happy about by the time we started writing Dangerous because that now allows Lillian to meet any characters that we can't have Edith bring onto the page. Right. So between them, they've got all of Hollywood covered. <laughs> <laughs> and in Dangerous to Know, a couple of very interesting subplots are, one is Albert Chaparro, who was the central figure in a massive smuggling scandal, which was apparently a huge deal at the time, but which I had never heard of. So what was, uh, what was his story and what happened there? As soon as we came across that, we knew that it was going to have to be a key part of the book because Rosemary and I both grew up obsessed with show business and yet had never heard of the scandal. We the, we came across it by accident in doing our research, and it ended up going right to Paramount's door. So it was it was almost like a gift from the universe that we stumbled onto this. But Chaparral was basically, I think I'd have to say, a con man. I think that's fair. Uh, he was uh, he was in Hollywood representing himself as a producer and he did actually have some involvement with a number of movies although his exact role in those films is still kind of a question uh at the time the story takes place in 1938 
He is uh, representing himself as the producer of a film called Meyerling, which was actually a very early foreign language hit in the United States. Uh, and he was also in possession of uh, diplomatic papers from Nicaragua that allowed him to bring in couture gowns and jewelry from Europe that you would not have to pay uh, customs duties on. And he very quickly took advantage of this situation to uh, bring in clothes for various people of substance in New York and Los Angeles. And the whole thing unraveled at a dinner party in New York in October of 1938 when uh, Chaparral was the guest of a New York Supreme Court justice. And uh, the subject of the, the war in Europe came up. Everyone at the table had recently been in Europe, was convinced that the U.S. was going to go to war fairly soon. And uh, everyone at the table had a very negative opinion of Hitler at that point. And the maid, who was uh, a German citizen, slammed down the terrine she was carrying and said she would not serve the dinner unless people stopped speaking that way about the Fuhrer. Because while she was their maid, she was also a proud German and she wouldn't abide this kind of talk. And she was fired on the spot. And the next morning, she went to the customs office and blew the whistle on the whole deal. And so you had a Supreme Court justice who, who, who was thrown off of his seat. You had a number of prominent New York socialites who were, who were embroiled in this investigation. And then soon after that, you have Jack Benny and George Burns, both of whom were Paramount stars, both of whom used Chaparral to bring jewelry and clothes into the United States illegally. Uh, and there's still some question as to who else was involved in this. There may have been other significant names, both in New York City and in Los Angeles, who were taking advantage of, of Chaparral's services. And we just thought, it's, it's paramount, it's close, it allows us to bring the war into the story at a fairly early stage, and we knew we had to do something with it. Yeah, I was floored by the details of that in the book, and it's all, like, you didn't have to invent any of it. It's all <laughs> stranger than yeah, fiction. All it's all there. It's amazing. Really, the hard part was was trying to weave a story around all of these details because the more we found out about it, we thought, really, this is this. It's an, kind of an incredible story, and uh, it it just did it ticked so many boxes for us in terms of of the material that we wanted to cover in the book that, that we we eventually had to restrain ourselves and say we don't have to put every detail of the case <laughs> in here. But yeah, there's a lot in it. Yeah, it's a little too unbelievable if you really tell the whole story, <laughs> I guess. Um, and another very important through line in Dangerous to Know, which relates in a way to that scandal as well, was um, a very interesting person named Salka Vertel, who uh, had a very strong connection with all of the European exiles who came to Hollywood in the 1930s. So what was her story? Well, she had a salon in her house in Santa Monica, and a lot of the emigre composers and actors and directors and writers um, would end up there. And she would host them. She'd make a big pot of stew and everyone would just hang out at her house and talk to each other and kind of feel a little bit more at home and not so much, you know, in a foreign land. It, it became a regular Sunday destination for a lot of these people. And Salka also uh, was a big driver behind the move to give these emigres jobs. She was instrumental in setting up... Um, a fund to help support them and give them work that was that was basically her, uh, a, a very significant agent named Paul Coner and a number of other studio executives put this into motion where a lot of these emigres would come over and receive initially at first fairly low paying jobs at the studios, but something 
uh, to, to keep body and soul together, to keep them on their feet. And then eventually a lot of them on their own merits rose up through the studio ranks to other positions. And Salka herself uh, started as an actress. She was actually on stage with Marlena Dietrich in, in Berlin in the, in, the, in the early 30s. Uh, but her husband was a director who came over to Hollywood to work. And Salka wrote a lot of uh, Greta Garbo's films. So she had very strong connections to the film industry herself. But very quickly, as as uh, as fascism spread across Europe, she became the sort of the doyen of this exile community. And uh, one of one of our favorite things we did on researching Dangerous was we made a pilgrimage out to her house, which is still standing in Santa Monica. In fact, it had just been sold, and they're in the process of of upgrading it. And we were we were very tempted to to kind of crash the, the the crew there that was working working on the house and saying you guys aren't tearing this down right you're just you're going to keep a lot of it intact because this is a very important house but fortunately at, at least the last time we saw it it looked very much the way that it that, that it did initially when Salk and her right. family were living there that it would have a beautiful garden in front and just it's a lovely neighborhood generally oh yes yeah, that sense, that sense of that community, that European exile community, is a really interesting uh, through line in, in your book, and Dangerous to Know. That was fascinating to hear about how all the people would come together in this way, that this thing they had in common, but then all the little relationships between them or among them would still come out there. Yeah. Um, and one of our favorite things about Salka, actually, is a, is a connection to film noir, which is her son, Peter, who also went into the business and became a screenwriter and who uh, wrote Saboteur, the Hitchcock film. Uh, he wrote The Hard Way, which is the movie that we've shown at Noir City, yeah. which which Rose in particular is a huge fan. Yeah, that is a great movie. And and he had a long relationship with uh, John Huston, worked on several movies with him, and in fact wrote the book White Hunter, Black Heart, based on their experiences making the African Queen together, which then got made into a movie by Clint Eastwood decades later. One degree of separation from Clint Eastwood from your books there. There we go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, let's talk also about um, a really fun part of your books is the fictional studio name and movie titles that you came up with for uh, for the stories. So with Edith working at Paramount and then Lillian going back and forth and talking to Edith there and some of the real life actors you had, you guess I guess you needed a little bit more freedom to have a whole other studio, which was not a real one, where you could just use that to weave that into your story however you needed, right? So well, the main thing, the main thing, Hagai, is we didn't want to get sued. <laughs> well, that is a very good motivation. There are, there are bad things happening and they weren't going to be happening at Paramount. They needed to happen someplace else that never really existed. <laughs> right. And so the name you came up with is a great name for it. it's uh, Lodestar Pictures. So where uh, were there some other names you went through for that or how did you end up signing on Lodestar? Lodestar actually came up fairly early in the process, and I think it just it happened because uh, we have, as you might imagine now, a lot of Paramount Pictures material here around the house. Because um, the Paramount, the, the archivists of Paramount have been fantastic to us. They opened the doors and and showed us a lot of of Edith's work, and have have we were convinced that they were not going to be happy about us hijacking part of the studio's history, but they've been nothing but 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 responsive to it, which is great. And so we have a lot of Paramount posters and shirts and possibly mm -hmm. shot glasses. I'm not going to commit to that. but And I think it was just looking at the Paramount logo, those stars around the mountain, where I thought, well, what if we just pick one of those stars and made that the essence of it? So Lodestar almost went in there at the beginning as sort of a, a, a working name for the studio. 
but we very quickly realized it 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 sounded right right it the more we talked about it the more we realized oh no that could definitely work yeah yeah that could be the name for a studio it does fit really well and i had never noticed i mean when i was growing up watching movies i got into classic movies a little later i guess i'd never quite noticed how self-important some of the movie studio titles were like <laughs> paramount and universal i think the first time i really noticed with those was in when i saw singing in the rain where it said at monumental pictures which right, is I mean, an obvious probably, reference to those i was gonna say we're a huge fan of behind the scenes and backstage musicals and movies too and so a lot of the names you would pick, like Monumental, they've been used before in, in other things. And so Low Star hadn't been used before, so we thought that would work. And you're absolutely right. It does lean into that sense of self-importance. <laughs> it just it just seemed like like the I we once very quickly we decided we're, I don't think we're going to come up with anything better than that. Yeah, it definitely works really well. And uh, another great aspect you have of some fictional movie titles are just as asides, but these are so much fun. I wanted to ask you about them. So one important character in Design for Dying in particular is a director named Lawrence Mino, who, if I'm pronouncing that right, M-I-N-O-T. That's right. Whom you describe as Lodestar's master of the middling musical. (laughs) (laughs) So a couple of these titles, which I really loved, one was in Design for Dying is Pioneer Panic. So what exactly is the story of a middling musical called Pioneer Panic? Well, clearly it's something set in uh, rural, I don't know. <laughs> we, we have some vague ideas. It's, it's sort of like a, you know, it's a, it's a land rush musical is, what we, is, is how we described it. Like, oh, two oh, families okay. that, uh, you know... They, they, they end up uh, butting heads while they're getting ready to race out into Oklahoma and stake their claim, and then they end up next to each other, and then the kids fall in love. Right. You can see just, like, <laughs> bales of fake hay in the background and gingham skirts and things like that. Right. Which ties in with, of course, um, as you also have in your book, uh, Preston Sturgis showing up as a character very briefly and uh, in Sullivan's Travels with, of course, Veronica Lake. We've got the great fake movie titles like Hey, Hey in the Hayloft is, <laughs> is my favorite there. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Oh, yeah. We we readily cop to the fact that 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 Sullivan's Travels is like a big inspiration for these kind of uh, these kind of names because we just we love that character, the idea of, of of a director who has maybe not pretensions necessarily, but ambitions to do something important, and it just turns out, oh no, you're really good at churning out this material that 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 makes a lot of money on the bottom of a bill, and that's what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, part of it is also just we watched a lot of Paramount movies from that period in particular, and uh, some of the output from Paramount then in particular was kind of dire. Uh, right. the, but, you know, there's there not a lot of yeah. yeah. I mean, and they're known. Uh, all the studios from that period often have have an image. You know, MGM is is the high tone costume pictures, and Warner Brothers is the gritty uh, urban stories. Paramount did have a, a sense of being the home of sophisticated comedy, um, beca- eventually because of Wilder and Sturgis and so many other people. But in the, the mid to late 30s, a lot of the movies they were making weren't that they're, – they're very much programmers. And some of the yeah. musicals that they were making in particular were just uh, kind of a slog. But we enjoyed them anyway, and so we decided we were going to have fun with uh, the making of these movies. Mm-hmm. And then another one, another of those of his musicals that you have in Dangerous to Know is called Murphy's Murphy Bed. <laughs> so my guess is this is a musical. Is hilarious. this a, is this a musical biopic of the guy who invented the Murphy Bed? 
that to me is more like they're doing kind of an AV's Irish Rose uh, film, okay. and um, it's full of, uh, shall we say, ethnic <laughs> comedy that might not translate very well now. But um, that was that was specifically a callback because because we wanted a reference to Lawrence in Dangerous to Know, and we wanted anyone who had read Design to know that Lawrence is still not happy with the direction his career is taking. Right. I said, what's the worst possible title that I can come up with for a Lawrence Minot movie? And, and that, yeah, yeah that, that, that one. And I just cracked up. That's hysterical. Yeah. My assumption when I read that was it was that um, since MGM had had their Best Picture Oscar-winning success with The Great Ziegfeld, that Lothar says, we need one like that. And they said, well, let's do it. If they had the musical biopic of the most iconic uh, Broadway impresario, well, we can do the guy who invented the Murphy bed. And that would be our big hit. <laughs> that might actually work. I don't know enough about his life, but now I'm wondering if there's actually yeah, a story there and how readily it could be musicalized. <laughs> You've got the beds to work with. You have lots of numbers on that. and. This thing writes itself. <laughs> Comedy potential with people, you know, <laughs> falling in and out and appearing and all that. Well, the stagecraft alone, like any Broadway musical that 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 hinges on a Murphy bed, I think you would you would you'd mint money with that. Oh, definitely. Okay, maybe we can uh, wrap up here with. Um, so, what's next for Lillian and Edith in their future adventures? Uh, are you all working on the next books, or anything you can tell us about ideas you have for upcoming books? Well, the, what we want to do for the third book, actually, is we'd like to spotlight the work of, a, of, of costume designers a little bit more and hit, have the plot hinge on the production of a B-movie at Paramount that Edith is working on. And we've come up with a B-movie for her to do that's sort of a proto-film noir. That was another thing we yeah. were interested in, in doing that follows up from the, the material and Dangerous to Know about the emigre community because – in 39, which is when the book would be set, you're starting to see a lot of these people get work behind the camera. So it's it's like a very early film noir that ties into Lillian's life in an unexpected way. And uh, that would also touch on uh, the arrival of Bugsy Siegel in Hollywood. And Virginia Hill. Yes, and Virginia Hill, because again, we're always trying to find the uh, the distaff angle on, on Hollywood history. And so we, we think that Virginia Hill in many ways is maybe more dangerous than Bugsy. Exactly. And then after that, we're hoping to uh, focus on the making of Citizen Kane, but in a way that would spotlight Marion Davies' story, because we're both huge fans of Marion Davies, and we found another one of these fascinating little tidbits of Hollywood history that provided a natural connection between Edith Head and Orson Welles. So we think we can work all of those things together to yes. tell that story. Well, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> I can't wait to see what comes of those, so... Yeah, and as you're moving on, I guess the, the idea you all have had from the very beginning is with each successive book, there's another part of Hollywood history that you're going to focus on in particular and kind of hang the, the plot around. Well, that's what we love about this idea is anytime we say, well, what, what would we write about after this? We just look at what Edith was doing and ideas suggest themselves. I mean, we went into this assuming we were going to get to uh, her relationship with Billy Wilder and with Alfred Hitchcock really, really quickly. But there's so much material to get to before that that, that we're like, yeah. well, wow, we are going to get to Hitchcock eventually, aren't we? Let's like That's so. why we got into this racket. <laughs> well, that sounds terrific. Okay, so uh, thanks again so much for joining us. And uh, so for more information on Vincent Rosemary Keenan's books, you can check out ReneePatrickBooks.com. All the links will be there in the podcast episode notes. So thanks again for joining us, guys. Thank you. Thanks, you guy. <laughs>
Thanks again to Vince and Rosemary Keenan for joining us. Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Film Noir Foundation by signing up on their email list at filmnoirfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media at Film Noir Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, you can contact us via email at podcast at filmnoirfoundation.org. We'll be back with another episode next month. And until then, thanks for joining us here at Noir Talk.